0: You may open your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. I hope you appreciate the Scriptures that we just read. And for any listening to the audio tape or viewing the video tape, we just had read to us Malachi chapter 2 verses 1 through 9, Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 16, and Revelation chapter 2 12 through 17. I hope that everyone here heard the words, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. If you go and read Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you'll find out seven warnings, blessings, rebukes, corrections, that Jesus Christ, He that hath the sharp two-edged sword coming out of His mouth, had to say to the churches, And so we learn from that place what Jesus Christ cares about. And there have been times where I have preached to you about losing our first love, and we do not want to forget that. There have been times I have preached to you about being lukewarm, and He would rather have us hot or cold, and we don't want to forget about that. I have preached to you that He stands at the door of churches, offering Himself in a personal relationship with every man in those churches, if they will have Him in. We don't want to forget that. But we want to see that He holds those churches accountable for any false doctrine or practices they had in them. Jesus Christ sees and knows what we do every Sunday. And we want to order our worship of Him according to the Scriptures. We saw there they had the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. They were following the doctrine of Balaam. They were eating meat offered to idols and they were committing fornication in that church at Pergamos, and the Lord was displeased with them for those things. Come to Deuteronomy chapter 5, as we consider further some ancient landmarks that God has given us, that we want our children to maintain after us, that we believe are important, that we want to know and defend. It should be understood by any hearing us at any time. And when they accuse us otherwise... It's because they have scornful and wicked hearts. We do not claim to be the only church practicing true apostolic religion in the 21st century. We are responsible for what God has shown us in the Bible. And as we compare most churches to what we find in the Bible, we find that there has been a significant and terrible backsliding that has gone on and is going on around us. We do not know of very many churches that are holding to apostolic religion. They have compromised. But we believe, based on the testimony of Scripture, that God has His 7,000 in all sorts of places. And we don't need to know about them, and we don't care that much that we don't know about them. We believe they're there, and we pray for them. We pray for them on a regular basis. Elijah didn't know where they were either. And we don't know where they are, but God knows. The Lord knoweth them that are His. And I want to make that very clear. We, we know of some other such churches, but we believe God has many more that we don't know about. We are not going to apologize for the truth, however. Right. Amen. You know, some people think that it is humility to talk and act like we don't really have any truth or we have only have a little bit and we're trying to figure out the rest. But God has shown us many good things and we're not going to apologize for it. Amen. We're going to preach it. We're going to love it, we're going to shout it, and we're going to blast the gospel trumpet, and we're going to call sin, sin, wherever we see it, in any church or churches. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Verse 31. Here is the way the Lord looks at worship. Deuteronomy 5.31. But as for thee, stand thou here by me, and I will speak unto thee all the commandments and the statutes, And the judgments which thou shalt teach them, that they may do them in the land which I give them to possess it. Ye shall observe to do therefore as the Lord your God hath commanded you. Ye shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Ye shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God hath commanded you, that ye may live, and that it may be well with you, and that ye may prolong your days in the land which ye shall possess. This is the word of the Lord to Moses. You stand and give those people My judgment, statues, and precepts. You tell them that they are not to turn to the left hand or the right hand. You tell them that they are to keep all the ways which I have commanded them, that they may live and that it may be well with them. And that is important for us. This is an old covenant commandment, but these words are are very little different from what Jesus commanded in Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen through 20, when He left this world according to the Gospel of Matthew. When He said, Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12. That was Deuteronomy chapter 5. Now we turn to Deuteronomy 12. There are many today that say it doesn't matter how you worship God as long as you're sincere. God doesn't care about your sincerity, He cares about how you're worshiping Him. The priests and nuns of Rome are about as sincere as people get. Many of them. Many of them are not. Many of them are. The prophets of Baal were very sincere. I've seen few Baptist preachers willing to pull out a knife and slash themselves until they're bleeding and dance all day long crying to their God. They were sincere. They were sincerely wrong. Amen. Sincerity doesn't mean anything. Right. What means something is are we turning to the left hand, the right hand, or are we right straight in the way that God's commanded us? Amen. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Amen. Let us humble ourselves and our ears to what the Spirit of God has to say. In Deuteronomy chapter twelve, verse thirty one, it's put this way twelve thirty one. Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God, for every abomination to the Lord which he hateth have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. What thing soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. How plain can the Bible get? In chapter 5, don't turn to the left or the right. In chapter 12, don't add to it or take away from it. Whatever God says, that's what we should do. That's what we want to do. We want to have a church for our worship of God that is acceptable in His sight by following His commandments perfectly. And we want to leave that church for our children to have a place to worship where God's commandments are done perfectly. And Lord, what we do not see, show us. Amen. We will cheerfully humble ourselves And tell thee and all men that we have been wrong, and your word has corrected us. We have changed in the past, and we will change in the future as God shows us. But we're not going to apologize for what He's shown us right now. And we're not going to worry about it because we believe it's the truth. I want to cover a great deal more ground today than we have covered. There have been reasons why I went so slowly the last couple of weeks And I hope you were able to discern those by visitors that we had among us. But we are going to cover some ground today, God helping us. Let us review very rapidly. We believe the King James Bible is God's Scriptures. I'm not going to prove that to you right now. The purpose of this series of messages is not to prove any of these points. If you think I'm racing over them without establishing them correctly, especially those of you that might be listening to tapes or watching videos, the purpose of this message and these this series of messages, is not to prove these points. We've proved them in other sermons. Right. It's to remind this church of landmarks that we have. And to keep those landmarks and to defend them and that our children will learn them and defend them as well after us. So the proof is not here. We simply mention them. If you want proof for any of the points that we make, they are found in other places. And the outline that will be on the website has extensive links to our own documents showing that we have dealt with these subjects before. We believe the King James Bible is God's Word in the English language. We believe that we can trust it as Holy Scripture, the inspired words of God, we can argue from its every word, we can trust its every word, and that it has sufficient by which we can grow thereby because it's got the words of the living God preserved to us. We believe that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. He is not a begotten God in any way, shape, or form. He is the unbegotten Jehovah. I am that I am. And we rejoice in that Savior. Our Savior is a perfect God-man. He was fully God. He was the fullness of the Godhead in the body. And He was fully man. We will not let anyone compromise the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. His deity was not begotten at all. His deity does not proceed from anything. His deity is I am that I am. He is as much Jehovah as any other person in the Godhead. He is the Word of God made flesh. We believe that baptism is only by immersion and only for those that have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and, that, and believe that He is the Son of God. We believe that baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God. And unless you have an active conscience, which little children do not have, baptism is not for you. We repudiate infant baptism as a heresy that came from Roman Catholicism. And any church that practices it today, no matter how much they may call themselves Reformed, they haven't Reformed enough. Because they're still holding the Roman Catholic baptism. We are thankful for men like William and Elisha Screvin, who had found a church in Georgetown, South Carolina in 1704 and name it, the Antipado Baptist Church of Christ. And that's, in your face, repudiation of infant baptism. Right. We believe the kingdom of God has been here for 2,000 years, that Jesus Christ is sitting on His throne at this time, ruling with the rod of iron, dashing the nations in pieces. He is the Son of David. He is the Son of God. He's on His throne, and we are citizens of His heavenly kingdom. Amen. We believe that the Israel of God is a spiritual people of Jews and Gentiles. Out of all nations, they're looking for a spiritual land based on spiritual promises obtained through the justifying death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're no different than our father Abraham. He didn't care about the land of Canaan and neither do we. We don't believe the people over there are the people of God. We don't believe the land over there is the is the land of God, the holy land. There's nothing holy about it. And we don't believe there's going to be any temple built there. We don't care what it looks like or who lays the foundation stones to mean anything to Christians. Mm -hmm. The temple of God is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, part of which is on earth, part of which is in heaven. We are members of the General Assembly. We've come in close connection with them. And that's the church in Israel that we worry about. Mm -hmm. Now, let's take up a new one. There's some others that we'll review in a moment. We believe that eternal life is an unconditional gift of God to his elect. Amen. And we believe that by seven proofs. Let's see how quickly we can cover the seven reasons and remind you that we and we could develop every, any one of these seven reasons into a full sermon or longer. But we believe that eternal life is an unconditional gift of God. We do not believe that God is trying to save anyone. Right. We believe that God will certainly save Everyone that He intends to save. We do not believe that God owes salvation or an offer of salvation to anyone because He already made the offer and they turned it down in the Garden of Eden. He offered the tree of life. They could have had it. They could have eaten from it every day. But they ruined that by eating the the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We believe that there is a great difference in the human race. Some have been chosen by God to eternal life, and they are vessels of mercy prepared for unto glory. The rest are those that have been left in their sins to the praise of His glorious grace. There is no unrighteousness, unfairness, or meanness in the Godhead. He doesn't owe salvation to any. He gave none to the angels that fell, and He does not owe it to us. Rather than resenting God for hating Esau, we praise God for His unspeakable riches of grace and mercy for ever-loving Jacob. If we see any unfairness, the unfairness is loving Jacob. Because that isn't fairness. That is pure mercy and grace. God doesn't owe anyone eternal life. He owes all of us eternal death. And He overrules it but for His own purpose and glory and praise throughout eternity and we will gladly give Him that. Amen. We believe that eternal life is an unconditional gift. Right. That means there is nothing that men do to cooperate or assist God in getting salvation. God is not trying to get you to do anything and we do not preach to get men to do anything to get eternal life. It's given by God. The first proof, very quickly, the first proof of this is man is by nature unable and unwilling to do anything to please God for salvation. Right. If you know your Bibles well, five, ten, fifteen, or more references are popping into your head. We'll look at one. Ephesians chapter 2. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. There was no difference between us and the children of wrath. We were spiritually dead. That does not mean we didn't have a mind. That does not mean that we didn't have a faculty of choice. That means that we hated God and were in rebellion against Him, and every choice we would make, And any thoughts that we would have in our minds were entirely opposed to the God of heaven because we were in love with ourselves and sin. This, these three verses are one passage out of many that teach us that man is incapable and unwilling to do anything to cooperate with God for salvation. He must be made alive first. And that's what the word quickened means in that first verse. And you hath he quickened. It doesn't say and you hath he convicted. And you hath he wooed, and you hath he begged or pleaded with. It says, and you hath he quickened. He had to make us alive because we were dead toward the things of God. We were choosing very willingly to follow the course of this world and to believe the devil who is the spirit that's mentioned here. First proof. Man's unable and unwilling to do anything for eternal life. And so there's the first category. Remember, we could expand this greatly. Here's the first category of proof that eternal life is an unconditional gift and God gives it to His elect. Turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. This separates us from almost all churches. We believe that eternal life is an unconditional gift And that Jesus Christ will get it to every single one God appointed Him to save and not a single one will be lost. And it separates us. John 1 and verse 13. Which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The second proof that eternal life is an unconditional gift is the Bible expressly denies that man's will or works has anything to do with it. Look at what this 13th verse says about those that believe in the 12th verse. It says they were born again before the present tense believing of the 12th verse, and they were born again not of blood. It wasn't by any racial connection, nor by the will of the flesh. It wasn't by what they had before they were born again, nor by the will of man. There were no parents, God-parents, or priests involved. They were given eternal life and born again by the power of God Himself. It was of God. The Bible expressly denies the will of the flesh. And that is all you have until you are born again. I am so sick of people trying to teach that if the will of the flesh will cooperate with God, then God will give you the Spirit. No, the will of the flesh is not part of the equation. It's the will of the Spirit. It's the will of the Spirit that would ever believe. That's the second proof. The third proof, faith and works are the results of eternal life. Not the conditions or the means for it. They flow from what God's done for us. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Oh brethren, I have to labor every week with people that do not understand this. And this separates our church from other churches. We do not believe God is trying to do anything in the matter of eternal life. We don't believe God's going to be frustrated in the least degree. We don't believe He's waiting on us to fill out the book of life. He's got it filled out, and this is all our salvation and all our desire, though he make it not to grow. Amen. David said that, and we believe it. Right. Philippians chapter two and verse 12, the third proof that eternal life is an unconditional gift given by God to his elect. Faith and works are the results of salvation, not the conditions or means for it. Philippians 2:12: "Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed? Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do, of His good pleasure. Amen. We are to work out the salvation that God has worked in. Right. We cannot work out something that's not already there. We don't work... In order to work in, we work out what God worked in. It is God that worked in us both to will and to do. There is again the statement that it's that our willing and our doing is the result of salvation, not a condition or a means for it. This is what the Bible teaches. And again, we could take this point and expand it with 10, 20 other verses showing that faith and good works are the result of eternal life not the conditions for it. The religious world is sacramental, whether they're Catholics or Baptists. They want to bring a sacrament of some sort of grace that you have to partake of in order to get eternal life. The Bible teaches that God gives eternal life and our willingness toward God, and our doing toward God is what He worked into us. Amen We must go on. Verse four, I mean, <laughs> verse four, when I start calling my outline verses, you call my hand. I meant point number four. The fourth proof that God gives eternal life as an unconditional gift is the fact that the Bible teaches Jesus Christ saved us by Himself. It is by the obedience of one, not two, not three. You can't mix your obedience in with His. You can't mix the obedience of a soul winner in with His. You can't mix a preacher's, priest's, prophet's or anyone else's obedience in with the obedience of Jesus Christ, it's by one, because we're saved by representation of the second Adam. Amen. Look at Romans chapter 5. You should know where I was going. Romans chapter 5. And then there's more verses. This is proof number 4. Jesus Christ saves sinners by Himself without human cooperation. For you young people that have memorized Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, It says, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of God in heaven. You know, those two words, by Himself, are taken out of all modern versions. We love those two words. He by Himself purged us from our sins. Romans chapter 5. Many verses could be read here. We'll read one. Verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners... So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. It doesn't get much plainer than Romans 5.19. That is an as-by, as-so construction. You have the little adverb as in the first clause, and you have the little adverb so in the second clause, which means there is a very definite, specific, and complete, and accurate parallel between the first clause and the second clause. As we... in the way that we became sinners, it is the very same way we become righteous. One man sinned for us, and death was cast upon all men. Death was charged to all of us by one man's transgression. Adam's disobedience in the Garden of Eden. Right. Because if you go back and read this, it says all men die because of what Adam did. All men died between Adam and Moses before there was a law like the law of Moses. Because of Adam's one sin, in that way, you became a sinner under the curse of death and condemned to die because of what one man did for you, and that was Adam in the Garden of Eden. In that very same way, we are made righteous before God, acceptable for heaven by the obedience of one man, Jesus Christ our Lord. He came and replaced the first Adam. He is the second Adam. God told the devil in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, that the seed of the woman would come and deal him a death blow to the head by being a perfect substitute for us and delivering us from the power of the devil. We believe that salvation is by the obedience of Jesus Christ himself. Don't you try to work any preacher, parent, or you into verse 19. You didn't have to be in the first clause because you were born to die whether you sinned or not. You were already a sinner by Adam. And in that second clause, you didn't have to do anything either, and you don't, because Jesus Christ does it all for us. The fifth reason, 2 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1, the fifth reason, the fifth proof, the the fifth category that proves eternal life is an unconditional gift, is that the gospel, and the ordinances that the gospel tells us about were never designed or intended for eternal life the gospel and the ordinances are to show god's elect what god has done for them and what they should do in remembering what he has done for them <coughs> baptism the lord's supper and other things the bible tells us that look at second timothy chapter 1 in verse 9 we are told that paul and timothy were saved according to god's purpose and grace which was given them in Christ Jesus before the world began. But in verse 10, we have this. That salvation that was purposed in Jesus Christ before the world began is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Notice, there's Jesus Christ again. He has made it manifest by appearing on earth Proof number four, it's by the obedience of one that we have eternal life. According to God's eternal purpose, Jesus Christ coming into this world showed how God did that. He made it manifest. And the gospel, the message, the good news, the glad tidings that is preached from pulpits, from the Bible, is not to bring life and immortality to anyone. It's to bring life and immortality to light. We do not preach the Gospel to bring life and immortality to ourselves, our children, nor do we preach it to carry life and immortality to anyone else. We preach the Gospel to bring life and immortality to light. How Jesus Christ secured it for us according to the eternal purpose of God before the world began. Chapter 2. Same point. The Gospel and the ordinances were not designed to bring life. 2.10 2.10 Notice what Paul says about his ministry. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. There is a salvation along with eternal glory that Paul labored to help the elect have. There are two words in this verse that you want to highlight. It's the word also, and it's the word with. That word with, the third word from the end of the verse is to be understood as along with. How do I know it's along with? Because there's two things under consideration as indicated by the word also. When you have also, you've got a couple of things being compared. I endure all things for the elect's sake that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus along with eternal glory. God's made certain that they're going to get eternal glory. That's why they're called elect in this verse. God chose them to eternal glory but there's a salvation in the gospel of hearing that message and entering into the rest of God. And Paul brought that to the elect. And that's what he labored for. You know, whenever anybody says to you or asks you about our church, do you mean to say that you only preach to the elect? What should you say? Amen. We do our best to narrow our audience down to the elect. Because that's what Paul did. You need to know 2 Timothy 2.10. That's what Paul did. That was number five. Number six. Turn to Luke chapter one. Luke chapter one. Proof number six, or category of proof number six, is that the Bible gives examples of men being saved without performing any conditions. (coughs) All these that like to holler and say that You've got to believe in order to be saved. When you, when you say that eternal life is an unconditional gift, don't you know you've got to believe in order to be saved? Say, I, do you really want to preach? Do you really want to preach that? And Do you really believe that? Oh, yes, I do. Because of John 3.16. That's, that's as deep and as wide as they can think. Then say, well, why don't you get up in your pulpit on Sunday and tell every woman in there that every miscarriage she's ever had, and every baby that's ever died is in hell, because none of them ever believed anything. There's no... Where do you think infant baptism came from? It's because little mommies can't handle their little babies not going to heaven, so they invented a doctrine to keep women happy, and that was infant baptism. I have told you very plainly that in the Catholic Encyclopedia, there are pictures and descriptions of intrauterine devices that look like a douche for women to make sure they get their babies baptized before they're born. Because there was a time when babies died so often in the womb and, it, and shortly after birth. That's how pagan... As soon as you make the mistake that baptism is necessary for salvation, you'll start baptizing your babies before they're born. Why wouldn't you? If baptism saves, wouldn't you do that? Or don't you love your children? You don't want to nod your head because you're ashamed to even think of such a thing because we know better. Baptism doesn't save, and the Lord has saved us from great errors because of that. Amen. Do you realize that all the corruption of baptism is because they think baptism saves? As soon as you believe that baptism is necessary for eternal life, you'll baptize babies in case they die so that you can get them to heaven. And then if you don't have enough water handy you'll sprinkle a little bit on their head because you don't have enough water handy and you don't want someone to die and go to hell. And on and on it goes. On and on it goes from one false premise. One. One. Are there verses in the Bible that would lead you to believe that baptism might bring eternal life? Oh, yes, there are. Do you know why they're written there? For men that don't want to believe these other proofs that I've given, they'll have enough rope to hang themselves. God put that in there. Let me give you a couple. Let me give you a couple. God said to Ana, God, Ananias, said to Paul, Saul of Tarsus, Arise now and be baptized and wash away thy sins. You, is that in the Bible? Yep. Ananias to Saul of Tarsus. Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Right. The like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us. There's five. You getting nervous? Is your faith being shaken? Oh, that's why we go over these proofs. We go over these proofs to understand that salvation is entirely of the Lord by His pure and free grace. It's not of the will of man. It's not of the will of flesh. It's not of works of righteousness. And so then we understand those verses to be describing to us a figurative emblem of how God did save us. And us giving an answer to God of a good conscience. And I didn't read all of those verses nor their context. But neither do the ones that use them for false doctrine. That's right. Oh, they don't know what to do with babies. What in the world are they going to do with babies? If you've got to believe, if you've got to be baptized, what are you going to do with babies? Well, babies are saved the same way anyone is. By the pure grace of God. Amen. By the obedience of one that stood in for them. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you about a man that was born again before he was born. Don't you love that? A man that was born again before he was born. Luke chapter 1 and verse 15 tells it, the angel told Zacharias about John the Baptist. He shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. The Holy Ghost didn't just come upon him, he was going to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Now you know, Paul and Peter and the apostles, they would see men baptized, and then filled with the Holy Ghost in the book of Acts. Here we've got a man that was full of the Holy Ghost while he was still in his mother's womb. Now, can we? this says from his mother's womb. Can we prove that he was filled with the Holy Ghost in his mother's womb? Can we do it? Can we find some other verses in Luke 1 that might help us? How about verse 41? Thank You, Lord, for an example like John the Baptist. Mary has gone to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Verse 41. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for the pepperoni pizza I had la No! The babe leaped in my womb for joy. John the Baptist was full of the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost, who bears witness of the Lord Jesus Christ in this world, witnessed to that little baby that there was a joyful reason to explode. And that babe leaped for joy in Elizabeth's womb because John the Baptist was in the presence of his cousin. And do you know who his cousin was? Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. They don't know what to do with babies, but we do. Turn them over to a faithful and merciful Creator who is more gracious than any father sitting in this audience or any father that has ever lived. I'd rather have my children in His hands than my hands. Oh, then someone comes up and says, but we have the age of accountability to protect children. If you want to believe in the age of accountability and you really believe in it, then you would suffocate your children before they lived long enough to get to that age. Because what if your child lived to the age of 12 and passed the age of accountability? Then they didn't do enough to believe on Jesus and they went to hell. If you really loved your children, you'd suffocate them about the age of 11. Guarantee their salvation. Isn't that right? I'm tell you about the greatest evangelistic efforts this nation has ever made. They're found in at most every town. They're called abortion clinics. They've put more people in heaven than any evangelistic effort ever made. 1.5 million a year because they abort babies if babies automatically go to heaven before the age of accountability. It's all, it's all, it's all man-made heresies. That's why it sounds so ridiculous. That's why you laugh at me. But listen, take their doctrines to their logical conclusions and they come out to be just ridiculous. Every baby that's ever been born is responsible. Every baby that's ever been conceived is responsible for Adam's transgression in the Garden of Eden, whether they have done any good or evil or not themselves. Right. And we can't ever forget that. We had a, See, God took such care of all babies that have ever died. He gave them a representative in the Garden of Eden that was a full, mature adult that, that walked with God every day in the cool of the evening. That had only one commandment to keep. God gave them a representative superior to anything they could ever be. They say our God's unfair. The only unfairness about the God we worship is in mercy He saved so many. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The seventh proof of why we believe eternal life is an unconditional gift of God to His elect. What's the seventh reason? It's my favorite. This is the only doctrine of salvation that gives God all the glory and reduces us into the dust where we have to cry, God be merciful to me as sinner." remember dad i remember i love getting to this point let me read a few verses to you first corinthians 1 beginning at verse 26 for ye first 1 corinthians 1:26, 1, for ye see your calling brethren how that not many wise men after the flesh not many mighty not many noble are called But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus. Who of God is made unto us wisdom, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. That, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. There is no one else to glory in. You can't glory in a parent. You can't glory in a pastor. You can't glory in a priest, a prophet, or anyone else. All the glory is in God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because look what it says in verse 30. But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus. How do we get into Christ Jesus? Of God, who chose us, verse 27, who called us, verse 26, by His grace. And He called and chose the ugly things, the foolish things, the weak things, those that are nothing in this world, to bring to naught all the glory of man. Because He's going to send them to hell, and He's going to send the poor things of this world to heaven by His marvelous grace. And of Him are ye in Christ Jesus You don't get into Christ Jesus by something you do. You get into Christ Jesus by something God did so that He gets all the glory. And I'll tell you in heaven, there's not going to be a line waiting to meet Billy Graham. Don't you imagine heaven that Billy's going to be standing next to Jesus and there's going to be a line almost as long for Billy as there is for Jesus. When we get to heaven, we're going to be at the feet of the Son of God thanking Him for saving us. And He's the only one that's going to get glory in heaven. Do you think the God of heaven is going to share His glory with another? There's not a word in the Bible that teaches that. Nowhere did Paul say, I can't wait to get to heaven because you're going to be my crown and my glory that I saved you. The churches of Jesus Christ were the crown and glory of Paul while they were here on this earth and he was laboring for them. But not in heaven. Paul's going to need a crown as much as anyone else when we get to heaven. He's going to need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ as much as anyone else. But of God are ye in Christ Jesus. And God has made Jesus Christ. Oh, we're going back to the fourth proof. Pastor, do you mean that all seven proofs can usually be found in the same place? If you look hard enough, Uh, that's just about true. God God has made Jesus Christ to us. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That's our salvation. We believe that eternal life is an unconditional gift of God. Chad, are you going to defend that for us? Jonathan, Lewis, Matthew, Joshua. Eternal life is an unconditional gift that God gives to His elect. Every single one of them is going to get it and no one else is going to get it. And God does it all for His own glory. We believe that. We call it the seven proofs of unconditional salvation. Don't ever turn away from it. If you ever compromise that you're going to go down a road, that you're going to end up with the age of accountability, you're going to end up with all babies being in heaven by a different means than anyone else gets to heaven. You're going to end up with baptism saving you. Don't go down that road. You're going to end up with God being frustrated with most of mankind. You're going to end up with a burden on your shoulders that if you don't go and save your children and grandchildren, they're going to go to hell. You will end up with burdens and confusion and problems unless you hold fast to the faithful Word of God. Eternal life is an unconditional gift by God to His elect. He doesn't owe it to any. He gave it to some for the praise of His glorious grace, and they were four prepared into glory. Amen. I know that you knew this, but do you know it well enough to remember a few of those seven? Do you know where to go and find the seven? Do you know that there's an outline on the website that can be put in your hands with all the verses from the Bible, or many of the verses from the Bible that would defend each of those categories? Do you know that? You need to know these things. This is an ancient landmark which our fathers have set. Amen. And we must follow the course of religion that keeps to these landmarks. Look at Romans 13. Let me go to a, another point that you know well. Romans chapter 13. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, my children in this church, Adam, Stephen, there's something else we believe about salvation. That when the word saved is used in the New Testament, it needs to be divided five ways or you're going to end up in confusion. We call this the five phases of salvation. Let's very quickly look at them. You know, some of you that go to places where you hear invitations. You hear the man in the pulpit say, do you know that you're saved? If you were to go out and die this afternoon, do you know that you're saved and you'd go to heaven? Do you know when you were saved? And then he'll say, if you don't know when you were saved, you can't be sure that you are saved. Let's come forward and get right with God today and make sure that we're saved. The five phases of salvation... The word saved is used in the Bible five different ways. Look at Paul. Do you think Paul was saved? Well, what did Paul say in Romans 13 and verse 11? And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Paul said he wasn't saved in Romans 13:11. Paul said his salvation's coming, though. It's getting closer. Don't you forget this verse. Paul said he wasn't saved in Romans 13, 11, but his salvation was drawing closer. 1 Timothy 4, 16. Was Paul sure that Timothy was saved? He wasn't sure that he was going to stay saved. He thought that Timothy might lose his salvation. 1 Timothy 4, 16. Bless the God of heaven that He's shown us these things. It is by pure grace. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul writes Timothy, and he's afraid that he's going to lose his salvation. He says, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Timothy, if you don't take care of yourself, your personal life, and the doctrine, the people that you preach to and you could lose your salvation. Do you mean the churches that, Paul pre- that Timothy preached to? Excuse me. Do you mean the churches that Timothy preached to could lose their salvation if Timothy wasn't a faithful minister? That's what it says. Do you know that verse? Timothy could lose his salvation. The people that Timothy preached to could lose their their salvation. How about Titus? It's just a few pages over to the right. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Now, we've had a salvation that Paul didn't have yet. We've had a salvation that Timothy was responsible for and could lose. And now we have a salvation that was up to the Spirit of God. Titus 3.5 Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Titus 3.5 describes a salvation that God does by the power of the Holy Ghost. And it's not by any works of righteousness on our part, even though Paul just told Timothy there were some works of righteousness on his part that could and would save him and his hearers. Okay, First Timothy 1.15, back to the left a few pages. Yes, we're dealing with Paul. Do you know what, if you'd have asked Paul, Paul, when were you saved? He'd have given you five answers. Four of them. Three of them were in the past. One he wasn't sure of. And the fifth was on its way. When were you saved? Did the apostles ever ask that? You know, I've read Acts a few times. Have you read Acts a few times? Did the apostles ever say, When were you saved? I love David. You know, if you ask David when he was saved, do you know what he would say? I was made to hope while I was on my mother's breast. That's prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's in Psalm 22. That's how David would answer, I was made to hope while I was yet upon my mother's breast. Praise the God of heaven, when were you saved? They don't even know what they're talking about. Right. They act like being saved is some, that little moment when you come forward to some altar where some priest has a sacrament for you, whether it's the Catholic wafer or whether it's the Church of Christ baptism or whether it's the Baptist decisional regeneration. It's all sacramentalism. It's doing something that God intended as an ordinance of remembrance for what He's done for us that they use to get salvation to people. Praise the Lord for saving us from all forms of sacramentalism. 1 Timothy 1.15 Paul said to Timothy again, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. This salvation was based on Jesus Christ when He came into the world. That was 2,000 years ago, and yet Paul said to Timothy, I mean to Titus, it was the work of the Holy Spirit. Now there's another contradiction. Is it Jesus Christ, or is it the work of the Holy Spirit? Then 2 Timothy chapter 1, and a verse that I referred to moments ago, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. 2 Timothy 1 9. Who hath saved us? Who? Well, we're told in the last part of verse 8, the power of God. Who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. There's five phases of salvation. I gave them to you in reverse order. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul, when were you saved? He would say, I was saved before the foundation of the world and the purpose and grace of God who put me in the Lord Jesus Christ and sent Him to die for me. The eternal phase of salvation. Then Jesus Christ came into this world who laid down His life for me, who was the chief of sinners. That was my salvation. And it's a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation. So I was saved legally when Jesus Christ died on the cross for me when He came into this world. Then Paul would say, During my lifetime I was born again by the power of the Holy Ghost that totally turned me around and made me seek God and pursue Him and serve Him. That's Titus 3.5. And if I'm faithful... If I take heed to myself, and if I take heed to the doctrine, and I preach it faithfully, I can save myself and them that hear me because I'll be a faithful minister and that salvation is gospel salvation where we hear the things of God and we hold fast to them and we please God with our lives. And we maintain full assurance, joy, peace, hope, faith, all the blessings of hearing the gospel and believing it That's dependent upon our faithfulness with what God's given us in the Gospel. That's what Paul told Timothy. If you'll take heed to those two things and continue in them, you can save yourself and your hearers. And then Paul said, I have another salvation that's on its way. It's not here yet, but it's closer than the day I believed. And what's that salvation? The salvation of our bodies. The resurrection of the body. The glorification of our bodies. The adoption of our bodies. Jesus Christ died for your body as well as your soul and spirit and He's coming back to save your body. Right, man. My body needs saving. Some of yours looks like yours do as well. Amen. He's coming back to save our bodies. The five phases of salvation. When we read the word saved in our New Testaments, we ask what phase of salvation is under consideration lest we end up in confusion. Paul told Timothy, You rightly divide the word of truth that you can be approved before God and that you will not be ashamed in your false doctrine. They are ashamed in the way they use the Bible, confusing the word salvation, thinking that it means eternal life every time that it's used, or thinking that it means being born again every time that it's used. It's ridiculous. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.